service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. What's the first case on the docket this morning? A man charged with shoplifting. All right, officer, bring him in. I want to see a man that's strong enough to lift a shop. <laughs> Here he is, Your Honor. Where is he? Here. I don't see him. Why, this is the man beside me. What, that little bit of a snip? Say, officer, he's no shoplifter. Sure, that consumptive-looking little guy couldn't lift a baby. This child. <laughs> the stories about Jack Nicholson are insane. He was attacked in his private studio bungalow by his girlfriend of 17 years after numerous betrayals. His house was a major Hollywood party scene in the 70s, and also the site of one of Hollywood's most shocking crimes. He fought the Motion Picture Association and the Los Angeles Police Department. He didn't play by the rules because he didn't acknowledge that the rules existed. Just ask the guy who feared for his life as Jack smashed his windshield in a bizarre road rage meltdown. And Jack Nicholson made great films. He played some of the most iconic roles in some of the most influential films of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Steve Porter performing a police court scene in 1919. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Tom Shadyak's Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And why would I play you that specific slice of alrighty then, cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on February 8th, 1994. And that was the day that Jack Nicholson violently bashed an idling Mercedes-Benz with his two iron. On this episode, an attack in a private bungalow, a road rage meltdown, the MPAA, the LAPD, and here's Johnny Jack Nicholson. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season three, Hollywoodland.
The Boston Garden was electric. Thousands of fans on their feet, screaming at the top of their lungs. Green and white rally towels flapping in the humid air. Sneakers up and down the parquet floor. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wiped the sweat from his goggles. Larry Bird thought about how good the first three Budweiser's were gonna taste. And from a private box high above the action, Jack Nicholson was yelling. Not that anyone could hear him. The garden was loud as fuck. He yelled anyway, because he couldn't help himself. He was always yelling at Lakers games. And Jack Nicholson didn't miss Lakers games. He caught them courtside, the forum in LA. He'd been the team's most vocal season ticket holder since the early 70s. But he couldn't be courtside because he was on set. He'd do everything in his power to wrap production early so that he could catch the action on a TV set in his trailer. Jack didn't miss a game. Even if that meant flying from Los Angeles all the way to Boston to catch game seven, which is exactly what he did on June 12th, 1984. The Lakers climbed to the top of the heap year after year. Division titles, conference titles, championships. Just like Jack was king of his own heap, he stood on top of that heap with an Academy Award in each hand. And also, like his precious Lakers, Jack Nicholson didn't take losing very well. So Jack was understandably beside himself as he watched his team fall to a 14-point deficit in the fourth quarter. Jack wished he was an earshot of the refs like he was back home or the opposing team's coach on the sidelines near his coveted seat. He'd like to give KC Jones a piece of his fucking mind right about now. The Lakers suddenly got their mojo back. They cut the Celtics' lead to 12 points, then 10, eight. With 26 seconds to go, the Lakers were down by seven. Jack ran his fingers through his wild hair, and that devilish grin of his suddenly sprouted on his face. They were doing it, climbing to the top of the heap but not before the Celtics' Dennis Johnson could wipe that grin off Jack's face when he sank two free throws with only seconds left. The clock counted down to zero, and the buzzer sounded. The Lakers lost the championship game. Up in his private box, Jack wasn't able to properly vent his frustration at the striped shirt rule keeper or some masshole townie. No matter, because unlike the Lakers, Jack didn't play by the rules. He took the L the only way a defiant rule breaker could. He turned his back on the court, pulled his shorts down, bent over, and then he mooned all 15,000 people in attendance with his bare ass. Only a handful in attendance actually noticed, but those who did catch it never forgot it. Not just anyone could pull off a stunt like that. Public nudity, disorderly behavior. But by 1984, Jack Nicholson had earned the right to be outrageous. He had more Academy Award nominations than any American actor in history. He commanded the screen and stole every scene. He ordered chicken salad on wheat toast, but told the waitress to hold the toast, and when she asked where should I hold it, he responded, between your knees. When his career took off in the 1970s, he sought out quirky roles that quickly made him stand out unlike any other actor. Sui generis. He turned down the role of Michael Corleone in The Godfather, and instead delivered one of his earliest iconic roles as Billy Badass Badowski in The Last Detail. He passed on sci-fi fantasies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, opting for smaller human stories with bigger human stakes like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jack Nicholson was defined by an exhilarating unpredictability. Audiences couldn't take their eyes off of him. 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest got Jack his first Academy Award after four previous nominations. His second golden statuette came in 1984 for his comedic turn in terms of endearment. Just months before, Jack dropped Trow and issued that now legendary moon over Boston. The next year, 1985, the Lakers got sweet revenge on the Celtics to win the NBA championship. But Jack was looking more and more like the 1984 version of his beloved basketball team, like the winning streak was coming to an end. And it was all because of one movie. And the movie was called The Two Jakes. It was a sequel to Chinatown, the 1974 film noir that had solidified Jack's status as a Hollywood A-lister. Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town had returned to pen the sequel's script, and Robert Evans, a.k.a. Bob Evans, Paramount's mighty production exec, he was back too. But Robert Town wasn't just writing the two Jakes, he was directing too, for the first time. And Bob Evans wasn't just the producer, Bob Evans was going to act in one of the film's lead roles, opposite Jack Nicholson. Bob, Jack, and Robert thought that hiring a non-director to direct a non-actor to act was a good idea at the time. An incredible act of hubris that only these two Bobs and one Jack could have. However, as principal photography for the two Jakes neared, it became obvious to Robert Town that one of those two things was most definitely not a good idea. So before the cameras even started to roll, Robert Town, the director, fired Bob Evans, the producer. Jack, the star, was bullshit. Everyone knew that Bob Evans couldn't act. The guy hadn't even appeared in front of a camera in something like 40 years, but that wasn't the point. The point was that Bob Evans was a friend, and he didn't deserve to be shit-canned before he even had a chance to prove himself. And that's what Jack thought anyway. So too did Paramount, of course. Production stalled. Jack fought with Robert Town. Robert Town fought with Paramount. And then Robert Town bailed. Paramount pulled funding. Lawsuits were filed. The two Jakes was dead in the water and the internal squabbling between the two Bobs and Jack was splayed all over the industry papers. It was a bad look, a Hollywood A-lister betting on the wrong horse. A stubborn star who let relationships curdle simply because he only did things one way, his way. And that's not how Jack Nicholson got to be so popular and so in demand. Jack Nicholson got to be so popular and so in demand because people liked him so damned much. At any given party in the swinging 70s with Warren Beatty, Clint Eastwood, Robert Redford, and Jack Nicholson in attendance, all the women gravitated to Jack. That grin, that smile. Some said it was devilish, others said it was the devil himself. The best parties, of course, were the parties at Jack's house. Up in the Hollywood Hills on Mulholland Drive, eight-room A-frame stucco pad, sliding glass doors overlooking a ravine, pool, jacuzzi, Matisse, and Picasso on the walls. Jack bought it for 80 grand in 1970. If you were in the know, then you knew about Jack's place. The door was always open to friends. Even Roman Polanski was welcome in that little Napoleon, despite the fact that he cast John Cassavetes instead of Jack in Rosemary's Baby and once smashed the TV set in Jack's trailer when Jack bailed on Chinatown rehearsals to watch the Lakers game. Some called Jack's house the epicenter of the era's drug-soaked scene. Author Bob Woodward claimed that Jack's house contained downstairs drugs and upstairs drugs. The downstairs drugs were for whoever happened to drop by, Mikasa Sukasa, 
but the upstairs drugs, those were high quality and were reserved only for very special company. And when it came to special company, Jack had all kinds, from one night stands to long-term flings. But no love affair lasted as long as the one Jack had with Angelica Houston, the daughter of the cinematic titan, John Houston. Angelica accompanied a friend one night in 1973 to attend a party at Jack's house. Anyone could see that he was a rake, a rogue, a Lothario. He was both charming and capital T trouble, a paradox. He was just like Angelica's father, actually, who'd made a name for himself in Hollywood not only as a director, but as a great seducer of women. And so, perhaps against her better judgment, Angelica allowed herself to be seduced by Jack. She spent the night, and then she moved in. Angelica's rocky relationship with Jack over the next 17 years would be the longest of Jack's life. Angelica even weathered Jack's infidelities. Well, most of the infidelities. She was even there, at Jack's house on Mulholland, hidden in the Hollywood Hills, when the cops showed up for the first time in 1977. But they weren't there to break up one of Jack's notorious parties. They came because Jack's house was the scene of a terrible crime. Jack Nicholson was in Aspen when he got the call. Angelica's voice was frantic. LAPD was at the house. Jack's house. They found a container of hash in the bathroom, half a gram of coke in Angelica's purse. Jack panicked. What about the other stuff? The good stuff? The upstairs trucks? Luckily, the cops hadn't found the good shit stashed in fake shaving cream containers. But wait, just what the hell were the LAPD doing at his house in the first place? Angelica asked Jack if he was sitting down. Roman Polanski had used Jack's empty house for a photo shoot while Jack was out of town. He was guest editing an upcoming issue of the French edition of Vogue, and Jack's house had the Hollywood Hills vibe he needed. And since Jack was out of town, his house also offered Roman the other thing he needed, privacy. Because the model that Roman Polanski was photographing was not a jet-setting denizen of the international haute couture. She was a 13-year-old. In the photo session, well, that may have just been a ruse, because Roman had more on his mind than a roll of film. What Roman had in mind involved champagne, quaaludes, and Jack's jacuzzi. When the girl became drowsy and disoriented, Roman took her to the upstairs bedroom and sexually assaulted her. Angelica just happened to come home in the immediate aftermath and, much to her surprise, found Roman and the girl there. Jack knew that Roman had been devastated when members of the Manson family brutally slaughtered his wife, Sharon Tate, and their unborn child back in 1969. That fucked with everyone in Hollywood. Jack himself slept with a hammer under his pillow for weeks afterwards. But eventually, as time marched on, Jack and everyone else in Hollywood started to sleep a little easier. Not Roman. He almost didn't recover. When he did get back on his feet, and started working again, Roman made Chinatown. Not only one of the defining movies of the decade, but the best film he would ever make. But now, Roman had done something truly
truly awful. It was disgusting. A 13-year-old girl. And Roman knew she was underage. He'd actually gone to her parents' house to ask their permission to take photos of her. No one thought that Roman Polanski, of all people, would ever be capable of such a thing. When Jack got back to LA, Roman was sitting behind bars. The cops were waiting for Jack at his house. Not satisfied with busting a celebrity director, the LAPD wanted the leading man, too. They'd heard all about the shit that went down at Jack's house. The stories weren't as crazy as the stories they'd heard about the 48-hour orgies over at Harry Dean Stanton's place. Honestly, they were all set with seeing Harry Dean Stanton in his birthday suit. But now that they had this container of hash they had confiscated from the upstairs bathroom, they wanted to pin it on Jack. Two birds, one stone. The cops asked Jack to tell them about the hash. This was the first Jack was hearing about it, and that's what he said. The cops wanted a set of Jack's prints so they could run them against the prints in the container. Jack refused. Fuck rules. Hell, he'd fought the MPAA back in 1971 when they tried to slap an X rating on his directorial debut, a little scene film called Drive, he said. They wanted to give it an X rating for an audible orgasm and a shot of a guy's cock. And meanwhile, Dirty Harry slides in with an R rating for his magnum force violence. Fuck that. Jack fought the MPAA and won. If the LAPD wanted some, they could come and get it. If it was a bluff by Jack, the LAPD called it. It wasn't the only thing they called. The cops rang up their friends at the Aspen, Colorado Police Department and were able to get a set of Jack's prints. Jack didn't even know how that was possible. The good news was that the Aspen prints didn't match the prints on the hash container back at his house. The bad news was that the LAPD wasn't satisfied and they were gonna get a fresh set of prints one way or another. So they issued a warrant for Jack Nicholson's arrest. What bothered Jack most about the whole dust-up was that a secret was going to get out. Not the secret about Roman. That deserved to get out. Roman absolutely deserved whatever was coming to him. But there was something private and special about being an A-list mover and shaker in Jack's orbit. There were things that happened at Jack's place that stayed at Jack's place. Movie stars enjoyed the discreet environment. Toke on some grass, do a line, talk shit about that actor, you know the one. Now, it was not only a crime scene, but a place where no one would ever want to go again. Marlon Brando, who happened to be Jack's neighbor, was one of those who sometimes took advantage of Jack's private hospitality. Brando didn't come around for the parties. He wandered into Jack's house and made a beeline straight to the fridge. He had padlocked his own fridge to curb his food cravings. But Jack's was always open, even if sometimes all it had in it was milk and beer. Jack didn't mind if Brando wanted to raid his fridge. He was Marlon Brando. Jack called him the man on the hill. Jack also called him Marloon. That was Jack speak for Marlon. See, if you were in Jack's intimate orbit, you got a nickname. It made you feel like you were part of a special club, Jack's club. Angelica Houston was Toots. Diane Keaton was Special K. Bruce Dern was Dernsey. Art Garfunkel was Art the Garf, and Warren Beatty was Master B or the Pro on account of how goddamn good he was at picking up chicks. Bob Rafelson, the director who worked with Jack on five films throughout his career, Jack called him Curly. Screenwriter Robert Town was Beaner. Jack assigned nicknames to people as far back as when he was a kid, called his own mother Mud. He called her Mud until the day she died, and continued to call her by that name even when he found out, years later, that Mud wasn't actually his mother. Shortly before Chinatown began production, Jack discovered that the woman he knew as his mother 
was actually his grandmother, and June, the woman he thought was his sister, was actually his mother. June, his actual mother, had dropped out of school to become a professional dancer with the band leader, Eddie King. She got married to a man who was secretly already married, and by the time she annulled her brand new marriage, June was pregnant, and she was still a teenager. To avoid the shame of having a baby out of wedlock, and also to allow June to continue to pursue a career as a showgirl, Mud became Jack's mother for all intents and purposes. It's a plot twist straight out of Chinatown minus the incest, and considering the timing of when Jack found out, it's very possible that the long-held family secret informed the shocking twist at the end of the movie. Just like the scene in The Shining where Jack loses his mind at Shelley Duvall was based on a real moment in Jack's marriage. And just like the scene in The Diner in Five Easy Pieces, when Jack tells the waitress to stick the chicken salad between her legs was based on a real moment in Jack's life as well. They say that art imitates life and vice versa. In 1977, that's exactly what the LAPD was hoping for when they arrested Jack on that warrant and dragged him downtown to get a clean set of fingerprints that they could run against the prints found on the hash container. If life imitates art, well, then Jack Nicholson just had to be every bit the stoner burnout he played to a T in Easy Rider. Spoiler alert, of course he was. Jack's hard partying ways meant that on some mornings he woke up in a tree or on the edge of a cliff. 100% true, you can look both up. But on this day, the cops wouldn't get the satisfaction of busting Jack on their suspicions alone. The new prints they took in LA matched up with the prints that had been taken in Aspen, but they didn't match the prints on the hash container, so Jack was free to go. And perhaps surprisingly, everyone continued to feel free to be themselves at Jack's house, except for Roman Polanski. That pederast had skipped the country and was hiding out in Europe. He could rot there as far as Jack was concerned. Roman had disrespected Jack's house, and worse, betrayed Jack's trust. Not that Jack wasn't above betraying the trust of someone close to him. Rules were meant to be broken, and so too were hearts. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The assistant behind the desk immediately recognized Angelica Houston when she stormed into Jack Nicholson's bungalow on the Paramount lot. The assistant asked Angelica to hang tight. She'd alert Jack that Angelica was there. Wouldn't be necessary. Angelica didn't stop. She kept walking. Right past the front desk and towards Jack's office. She wanted the element of surprise on her side, and she had it. She caught Jack coming out of the bathroom, still working on his zipper. Angelica wasted no time. Jack had barely thrown his hands up when she threw the first punch. She connected, direct hit to the head. Jack tried to bob and weave like a prize fighter, but the over-under favored Angelica, a fist to the face, another to his ear. Jack wrapped his arms around his head, so Angelica aimed lower. Any exposed part of Jack's body was fair game. Her fist found his chest, his back, his shoulders. Her face was beat red. Tears ran down it. Jesus, Jack thought. The suit, watch the goddamn suit. It was 1989, but Jack was trying his best to look like it was actually 1948. He had managed to resurrect the two Jakes, the long gestating sequel to Chinatown and was wearing a tan suit to resurrect his role as Private Dick Jack Giddis. That was the same year that Jack helped breathe new life into the comic book movie when he played the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. 
For the two Jakes, they were still using Robert Town's script, but Bob Evans was paying Jack $11 million to star and to direct. It seemed that once again, Jack Nicholson was unbeatable. Angelica Houston thought otherwise, and she proved it by beating the shit out of her boyfriend of nearly 17 years inside his private bungalow. She didn't get the satisfaction of having the entire Paramount lot witness it, but she did get the satisfaction of knowing that the beatdown was more than justified. She had found love notes from strange women in the past, not to mention the time when he and Angelica went to see Carol King play in Central Park and Joni Mitchell decided to sit on the ground between Jack's legs throughout the whole show. Jack had brushed both instances off. It was meant for someone else and we're old friends, but his infidelities had been escalating as of late, or at least Angelica's awareness of his infidelities. As she could only imagine the way Jack looked at Cher, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer on the set of The Witches of Eastwick. They were three bombshells and he held the match to light the fuse. The night before Angelica went ballistic on him, Jack revealed to her that he had had an affair with another woman, which honestly was not entirely shocking. What was shocking was that Jack had also revealed that the other woman was pregnant and Jack was the father. Incredibly, that's not the only thing that sent Angelica Houston to Jack's bungalow in a full-blown rage. In addition to Jack's confession, was a recent interview that Playboy model Karen Mayo Chandler had given. Karen said that Jack was, quote, a nonstop sex machine. He's into fun and games like spanking, handcuffs, whips, and Polaroid pictures. To Angelica, it was humiliation squared. What did she expect nearly 17 years later? She called him the hot pole for Christ's sakes. And that was the nickname she had given Jack back when Jack was handing out nicknames to his closest friends. If it's not obvious why Angelica called him the hot pole, it's because Jack Nicholson's libido ran like a fucking SST engine. He thought about sex all the time, talked about sex all the time, had sex all the time. After working with Jack on Batman, Kim Basinger famously said, he is the most highly sexualized individual I've ever met. It was rumored that Jack had an underground tunnel that ran from his house in the Hollywood Hills directly to the Playboy Mansion. It was also rumored that he had had an affair with Margaret Trudeau, wife of the former Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and mother of current Canadian Pajama Boy Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Now that is a man who moves like Jagger. He fathered six children by five different women. His one and only marriage ended in 1968. His entire angle when playing Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was that his character was trying to seduce and sleep with Nurse Ratchet. That's literally how he approached that role. He even admitted to getting turned on by the motherfucking Lisa. Jack's sexually charged reputation may have been the reason why in 1996, when Jack was 63, a prostitute sued him for assault. She claimed that Jack hired her and another woman to come to his house in little black dresses, that he refused to pay their agreed upon rate of $1,000 each, that he dragged her around by the hair and slammed her head on the floor, she also claimed that one of her breast implants ruptured during the altercation and she needed money for the medical bills. The cops were called to Jack's Mulholland Drive house, but like the time when they investigated the Roman Polanski scandal, they once again left with no evidence of Jack's guilt. Despite that, Jack settled out of court with his accuser for a total of $92,000. But back in 1989, 
there were no cops called to interfere with Angelica Houston's assault on Jack Nicholson. And that was a 100% justified smackdown. And it also gave Jack pause when he licked his wounds. Perhaps he wasn't the invincible A-lister he saw himself as. Perhaps, as Jack had feared that one time when he watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off in a theater surrounded by a cackling audience, his version of a movie star was on the verge of extinction. Perhaps this Chinatown sequel was a giant turd of a picture like they all had suspected from day one. But one thing was for sure. Jack's failure to be faithful and follow the simple rules in a monogamous human relationship led to one thing, emotional annihilation. And those were Jack's own words. I was annihilated emotionally by the separation from Angelica, he said, referring to their split following Angelica's display of anger. He gave her a pearl and diamond bracelet that Frank Sinatra had once given to Ava Gardner for Christmas that year, but the damage was already done. And since breaking the rules and breaking hearts was no longer working out for him, it was only a matter of time before Jack would find something else to break. And this time, Jack Nicholson would be the one assaulting somebody else. When The Two Jakes was finally released in August of 1990, it bombed. The movie only did $10 million in domestic gross, which was a third of the take that Chinatown had made back in 1974. $10 million wasn't even enough to cover costs. Reviews were mixed. Plans for a third movie in the Chinatown series were permanently canned. Within the span of little more than 12 months, Jack Nicholson had gone from a box office success with his unforgettable performance as the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman to a forgettable box office failure. Critical and commercial redemption came in 1992 with the release of A Few Good Men. Jack received his 10th Academy Award nomination to date for his intense performance as Colonel Nathan Jessup. Doubters be damned, they still needed him on that wall. But redemption at the box office wasn't enough. Jack continued to weather emotional fallout from his breakup with Angelica Houston. The woman Jack had left Angelica for, Rebecca Broussard, had two children with Jack before she, too, left him in 1994. For the first time in a long time, Jack found himself unattached. Perhaps his days as Hollywood's preeminent lady killer were behind him. Jack knew that for there to be good times, there also had to be bad times, and for good days to exist, bad days were necessary. In February 8, 1994, was going to be a very bad day. Jack Nicholson sat in traffic on Moore Park in the San Fernando Valley just north of LA. He was on his way to play golf, a leisure activity he'd taken up to try to pass the time and keep the blood pressure down. Traffic inched along. The pace was frustratingly slow. Jack began to feel more and more impatient. As he approached a red light at the intersection of Riverside, a big Mercedes-Benz came out of nowhere and cut him off. No blinker, no warning, no nothing. Jack slammed on his horn. He threw his hands up in the air. And that asshole in the Mercedes was just sitting there, idling at the light. Jack put his car in park, stepped outside and walked around to the back. He opened the trunk. He saw his golf bag inside. He selected the graphite two iron. 
He never used the two iron on the course. Few people did. For one, it was long as shit, and it had one of the lowest loss of any club, which is to say that the club head had little angle and was flat. It was hard to hit a golf ball with a two iron, but Jack wasn't going to hit a golf ball. Jack made a determined walk to the Mercedes in front of his car, two iron in hand. He thought about Angelica leaving him, and then how Rebecca had left, and they all left. He raised the two iron into the air and brought it down hard on the Mercedes' front windshield. The thing cracked like an egg. Shards of glass shot out like sparks from a live wire. Inside the car, the driver shrieked and recoiled. Jack raised the two iron again. He thought about the failure of the two Jakes and that other failure, Man Trouble. And then he thought of the movie he was in the middle of making, a movie called Wolf, and how he had quarreled with the screenwriter over the script so much that the screenwriter stormed off the set, quit on the spot, and vowed never to return to Hollywood again. Good riddance, pal, Jack thought, as he slammed the golf club against the car one more time. And the driver inside was curled up like a baby and cursing a blue streak. And then, Jack walked calmly back to his car, threw the two iron back in the trunk, pulled a passive-aggressive 180, and sped away. It just wasn't a good day to go golfing after all. And later that day, the doorbell rang at Jack's house, LAPD. Jack quietly went with the cops to the Van Nuys station in the valley where he was charged with two counts of assault. The driver of the Mercedes managed to take down Jack's license plate before he sped off. And there were other eyewitnesses too. And the driver followed up the charges with a civil suit for his injuries and trauma. This wasn't the Boston Garden, and Jack hadn't simply shown his bare ass in a fit of frustration. He had violently attacked someone else's vehicle with the intent to inflict maximum damage. Before the case went to court, Jack settled with the driver for an undisclosed sum. Allegedly, Jack coughed up 500 grand. He also made a public apology. Jack admitted that his road rage was, quote, a shameful incident in my life. He was worked up. He had a lot on his mind. It's just one of those fucking days. And who knows? Maybe the driver hadn't cut him off after all. Maybe Jack was just looking for an excuse to unleash some of that pent-up energy. Months later, near the end of 1994, a letter arrived at Jack's Mulholland Drive house. It was from the driver of that Mercedes. The letter was an apology to Jack. The driver admitted that he had cut Jack off, that he had flagrantly disregarded the rules of the road, that he had been in the wrong. Jack couldn't believe what he was reading. He didn't care about the money that he paid out or what the incident had done to his record or reputation. He was Jack Nicholson after all. He'd had an incredible career for over 20 years, and he had at least another 20 years of good movies and bad movies ahead of him. He'd focus on the good, and he'd relish the good days, like this day. He felt pardoned, he felt acknowledged, he felt that feeling of a reversal of fortune on the horizon, the kind of feeling that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. 
If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 